0: Hi there, welcome to Sound and Image Lab. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. It's a show about how artists use technology to help them tell their stories. And I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today, we're bringing you an interview with the filmmaking team behind a really interesting new feature film documentary called Fathom. It's a documentary following the work of two ambitious scientists, Dr. Michelle Fournay and Dr. Ellen Garland who are tirelessly working to decipher what could be the oldest language on the planet Earth. And some would say the oldest culture on Earth. These are the songs and the calls of humpback whales. These haunting, beautiful songs and choruses have been mesmerizing to many of us for many, many years. But thanks to modern technology and the work of dedicated scientists like these, we are getting ever closer to understanding maybe how these songs are used to communicate between the whales and what they're saying to each other and how they've been doing so for millions of years, long before humans showed up on the scene. If you haven't seen the film yet, it is really stunning. The director of the film is also the cinematographer. Drew Zanthopoulos managed to capture some truly stunningly gorgeous footage, which you can see in stunning Dolby Vision on Apple TV+. And the sound supervisor and re-recording mixer, Brad Engelking, crafted an exquisite immersive soundtrack in Dolby Atmos, which makes you feel as though the whale songs have totally engulfed you. So does this mean that one day soon we'll be able to communicate with humpback whales? I recently had the chance to sit down with Drew and Brad to talk about their work on this amazing film and to ask them that very question. You know, Drew, what are you, how did you end up working with Brad? What about his work drew you to him and say, yes, this is
1: this is the person I want to work with on the sound? Brad and I had known, we would worked before on a project that I uh, was a cinematographer on when I was in grad school, Vultures of Tibet. Um, and so we were uh, at least familiar with each other. Then um, the producer, Megan Gilbride also was familiar with Brad and I'd worked with uh, TBD. Um, as well. So it was the decision, honestly, I mean, Brad's resume is fantastic. He's worked on like on huge films with like where everything is sort of constructed from scratch to create this whole other it's like world building, right? Acoustic world building. So he was used to that. Um but even more important than that, it it was uh we like knew him, like knew the crew that that he was working with and and for uh for Fathom um, everyone that worked on this film was like family, like it's such a small crew, um, on, on, in every end, um, of production. So, uh, that was really important. So we knew the most important thing was we knew that, uh, Brad would take care of us and, and care about the film and care about the project.
0: Yeah. Drew, your background is in cinematography. I know you shot Travis Matthews, uh, movie, which I, I, I really love. Um, Oh, I, Tra- Travis is an old, an old friend of mine. Um. So I'm really curious about the process of shooting this film because it's just stunning. It's beautiful. So how, I mean, how big of a crew did you go? Did you go up? Did you shoot it yourself? Kind of like walk us through a little bit of the production process of capturing this beautiful footage.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Um, Tra- Travis is one of my most, uh, one of the best collaborators I've ever worked with, by the way. I, I adore him. Uh, uh, Fathom was, it was a one man band. I was, I sh- it was all shot. I shot by myself and, Part of that is because I really, um, I really believe that the crew subject ratio has a bearing on the kind of material material you get, and it's so intimate. The scientific, uh, the f- field work is so intimate. It's just, it's like two or three people out there, and there's nowhere around, no one else around you for miles and miles and miles and miles. So, um, knowing how intimate it was, knowing how much space a uh, crew would take up, um, it kind of had to be me. But I, I'm kind of used to working that way, like the rapport. Um, that you build with someone, um, the amount of trust that is required that I'm asking of somebody to be part of this film. I mean, the risks for these scientists to be part of a, doc- a documentary, which is going to feature not only their work, but aspects of their personal lives, the risks are huge for them professionally and personally. So, um, yeah, I did it myself and uh, it was really hard uh, at times on on every level, but um, uh yeah, uh I think the hardest parts of filming were honestly the weather and the boats. Uh it's really easy to get nauseous if you're staring at a viewfinder while you're trying to stabilize your body and stabilize the camera and it's just like it's a you eventually it's amazing the mind gets used to it. You get used to um you know doing all those things at once. Uh but mostly honestly I was just holding on tight and trying to focus and point the camera at the right place at the right time and uh uh with occasional opportunities where I could really um you know uh be very calculated on how I wanted to shoot certain things
0: i that's remarkable to me it's you know it's stunning that even with that, there' are some really gorgeous cinematic shots in this. I'm thinking about like there's a great shot towards the opening you're you're we're uh following uh Dr. Michael Fournay. And there's a lot of shots of people listening in this film, which I really adore. But she's on her computer, and she's kind of screen left, and we can. She's in a house, and we can see through the the door to a beautiful sunset outside, and it's just a gorgeous kind of Terrence Malick shot, almost. That it's it's kind of amazing to me that you that you were running and gunning on your own.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, another really. Convenient thing about uh, the scientific process is it's very repetitive, which gives me a lot of opportunities to get it, you know, the perfect shot and the perfect framing as much as possible. Um, and then, of course, like the location, location, location. It's it's we were shooting. I was shooting in Alaska and French Polynesia, and um, you know that was Alaska in the summertime. So I think when that shot you described was being filmed, it was probably like eleven thirty at night or something, and the sun you know, it, you still had that sort of, um, twilight going on. So, um, yeah, it was really, it was just a, such a treat as a cinematographer, as a filmmaker, it's just such a treat. Everything feels new. All the images feel new and, and, and uniquely beautiful. And you get really greedy. You want to capture everything. Um, I slept really well on those shoots. That's great.
0: So you're out there by yourself. To, how did you capture production audio? Um, you know, were you were you, every, was everybody on wireless mics or how did you, how did you get such clean dialogue recordings? <laughs> Brad, Brad's <laughs> laughing. Maybe they weren't so clean after all.
1: Uh, <laughs> um, so I, uh, for a number, okay. So uh, here are my excuses and I'll tell you why, how I did, how I did it. The excuses were that, uh, um, in Alaska, there was no power. There, there were every. I brought in like 400 pounds of electric generators and solar panels, all of which failed at some point um, uh, during production. So it was given that it was just me. I, I just decided I couldn't. I couldn't handle dealing with what, like having to recharge. Not only uh, dump data at the end of the day and like recharge camera batteries and make sure everything's clean and like not salty, but. On top of that, having to deal with um, wireless lavaliers and all that, everything that went into that while on a boat, that's the size of a large couch. I mean, it was just too many things. So I didn't use any wireless lobs. I used a single Sennheiser 416 shotgun mic um, for all of the audio, for all the production audio in the movie, which is a great moment to segue to Brad for how the actual magic, movie magic was done uh, for that aspect of the film. How'd you do it, Brad? How the hell do it by the way? I want to acknowledge but off the top that Nick Ryan, our sound designer, um uh none of we wouldn't be sitting here without him, like the months of work um that he also put into this film and assembling uh libraries of sounds and, and sketches of uh kind of how the sound would how the movie would feel acoustically. Um uh but yeah, uh Brad, how do how do we do that? How do we translate a Sun Answer 416 into an Atmos? immersive film uh
2: you know you kind of just do right um the uh you know the dialogue wasn't horror i mean considering the locations it really wasn't horrible you know and i think that because you know a lot of the time we were going for a kind of immersive experiential style that it was kind of it almost in a way kind of told me where to point the mix because where the microphone was, was kind of where I had to point the mix, right? Um, But I, I, you know, I I think that, uh, you know, ultimately, I mean, you know, there were certainly a couple scenes that, you know, in a perfect world, it would have been nicer to have something else to work with, potentially, but that's every documentary. So I, 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 it really wasn't, you know, I mean, again, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, they're on a boat, right? So I don't want to take all that out of the show and you know, and for, uh, and actually the trickiest stuff was really, you know, Alaska was tough because what we were trying to do there was make it feel really, really quiet, but also make it feel immersive in that you're there, but make it really quiet. And that's actually I think that's one of the hardest things you can do sound wise is to make an interesting mix that's happening and moving around, but that's quiet and feels secluded like that. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge just to get the dialogue low enough so that we could do that with sound also. Right. But the 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 South Pacific stuff, that was that was really challenging because the boats moving all over the place and, you know, Drew's like you said, just trying to hold the camera steady and, and, you know, everybody's running around yelling and that, that stuff was pretty challenging. But again, you know, we tried to. You know, purposely in the film, tried to make Alaska a very quiet place with a lot of solitude. And then when you go to the South Pacific, make it very busy, you know, just to, so that there there was an obvious place where even if you didn't see what was happening on camera, you could tell, you know, by sound where you were. So that helps the dialogue that was so noisy and had all that stuff because we were going to make those scenes really noisy.
0: Yeah, you did a great job of establishing that, that contrast and that transition between uh, Dr. Ellen Garland's uh, circumstances and, and Dr. Michelle Fournay's. And and I love how it became almost a thematic element. You know, Dr. Fournay talks at one point about, you know, her life at home and, and how she doesn't have the internet at home and how she purposefully builds a really quiet, kind of serene um, kind of space for her. That sounds
3: right. I think that's us. It's quiet. Mm-hmm. But again, like, it fits right in. It fits right in. Oh, yeah, it sounds very, very realistic. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. not us. No, it's not. No, we're over here. This yeah. is us. <laughs> I think the whoop is a kind of hello to them possibly, hello, I am, which raises the question, if each whale has their own whoop, could they use it to identify each other? This is why I'm playing this sound. Before you can have the conversation, it helps to introduce yourself
0: she's a very interesting character and it made me wonder like do you think that she hears the world in a different way than the rest of us because the quiet and the the silence is so important to her
1: yeah i i think it's a great question i i do think so um michelle's ears are i mean professionally speaking they're so finely tuned to hear details um in a way that most of us uh, haven't really practiced listening in, in the same way, um, and I think that's why she lives in a quiet place. I mean, it's a, it's a choice. I think she'd be overwhelmed um, uh, otherwise. Uh, she also has natural gifts. I think uh, she's just her ability to hear hear things and mimic things is is really extraordinary. Um, but yeah, I think I, that said, I think I think we all kind of start off that way. I think she has, be, you know, beginner's ears, uh, so to speak. She's just, uh, I think we just kind of we live we live in really loud environments. In some ways, it's a mirror held to us, uh, um, in terms of how we hear things. Which, actually, to be honest, like I've thought about this a lot with the mix of the film, which I think the journey acoustic, one of the journeys acoustically in the film is. Trying to slow an audience, uh, an audience member down acoustically a little bit to hear because there's so much richness in the quiet. It's not actually there's no silence in the film. Um, there are just sounds that are so nuanced and so um, they require you to kind of listen in and, and tune in a different way and lower the sort of uh, ceiling of of noise. Um, and it's really important because that's how she listens. And so I think the way Michelle and Ellen listen. Um, informed the mix in that way uh, uh was trying to quiet things down i mean the range is pretty huge isn't it Brad? Uh, yeah Bill, i mean it's, it's, it's you know low, we never low. get
2: to what uh, you were referencing terrence mallet uh, we never get to what he would call vin diesel maximum but you know we we do i mean it is a very I, I think it's a pretty dynamic mix i mean we go from you know very quiet to you know pretty loud in spots so yeah
0: you know, this show, the Dolby Institute Podcast, is is we like to say it's about how artists use technology to tell story. But I'm really curious about, you know, in the, in this way, in, in this sense, you've got two two scientists who are using um technology and sound to tell their story about these animals. So the big question that I have for you is: if they continue this research, do you think um that I mean is the end goal ultimately do you think that they're going to be successful that humans will one day be able to communicate with whales I'm sure that you've given this a lot of thought
1: Yeah um <clears throat> I have given a lot of thought and I've, it's it's gone through a, a pretty big arc uh, as I've come to understand why they're doing why the scientists are, are doing what they're doing um and the the point is to understand what the what the whales are saying to each other um uh, as, as num- number one. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One of them is ethical, sort of interfering uh, too much with uh, the natural goings on of, the, of another species. But two, I think it's, uh, for them, it's more interesting. Um, they have a lot more to say to each other than we have to say to them. Um, and, uh, and but more, more importantly, candidly listening to a conversation between two other uh, kinds of intelligence um, you know, I think Michelle would say, you know, it's they're saying everything we need to we need to understand. We just need to actually just listen to them um, and and maybe not not talk for once.
0: I have so many questions about the whale sounds and the whale song in in the film, um, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Ellen Garland, and she's really struggling, like to get clean recordings of anything. It's so it's so difficult because the ocean is so noisy, the conditions are so tough, um, and yet you have these beautiful from the very beginning, these gorgeous, full fidelity, full range, just amazing sounding whale song recordings. So I'm curious. Uh, tell us about the process of creating those. What was the original source material? How did you treat it? I'm sure you had a lot of fun with Atmos uh, with the whale song. So, talk to us about the creation of specifically some of the the the, the whale song stuff that we hear in the beginning, uh, and then some of the stuff that that Doctor Forney uses.
2: A fair amount of the stuff um, in the beginning is um, is was actually recorded quadraphonically. and I believe uh, that's that's Michelle, right, Drew. Yeah. So she mm-hmm.
1: reco- yeah yeah Michelle uses yeah. four. So those are recorded
2: yeah. quadriphonically and then the microphones are a kilometer apart in a square. So I mean, really, a lot of the cool was was kind of baked into that, right? Because you get that spatialization just from that. Um, and then Nick uh, and his uh, sound design team, you know, they took those raw recordings, cleaned them up because there is, you know, pop. There's you know, water noise and stuff on them naturally. So they took those sunk them up, cleaned them up, you know, they had like a clapper to sync the four up. And then um, and then, you know, we we put them in the atmos field and and you know, rather than just leave them sitting in the corners, you know, they we kind of moved them around the room a little bit to give you the feeling of, you know, them there that there that there's movement as well as just, you know, the the kind of hard quadraphonic sound. So yeah, I mean, that stuff's all kind of layered layered in. And we tried to, you know, there was a lot of very detailed work by Nick and his team. And then on the stage, you know, we, we did a lot of detailed work also, just being very, trying to be very cognizant of where we were putting things and, you know, like finding our dramatic pauses, you know, and how they kind of, how that locks in with the music in places and with the dialogue. And, um, I, you know, and then there's other source recordings we have that are, you know, specifically kind of not cleaned up. So to kind of give you so one is more of like like the quadraphonic tough stuff tends to be more kind of experiential, like you're in the water with the whales to kind of give you like an idea of what it is that they're trying to discover, you know, so that you can kind of feel that. And then and then there's the stuff that's more flat and still has the noise on it. So you can see kind of uh, particularly we're talking about Ellen, particularly got kind of her frustration in that. You can almost hear the whales or you can just barely hear the whales but there's just so much noise that it's not it's it's not it's not usable for her
1: a really interesting conversation that came out early on when we were playing uh with the mix which um i don't know what the institute is cooking up uh, for the next iteration of of sound uh surround sound but um one of the things it's really remarkable it's really uh if you if you think about it in water the sounds would be coming from all directions but our theaters are designed in such a way that they're you know we, we're standing on the ground usually the sounds are coming from like at our level or above and so we were like man is there a room where we could like flip all this upside down and have sounds coming from like way below from the depths um so that's a dream a dream uh theater Experience it uh, if if Dolby's taking any suggestions. It'd be cool to have an underwater.
0: We will have to figure out how to rig some speakers in the floor to get you to get you that full yeah. that full experience. Well, it's interesting. Like I I, I love how it's almost like a, a a great demo of before and after. Uh, you know the the original recordings that Dr. Garland is getting with all of the the sea noise and and it, it seems like uh, you kind of uh, set up. Uh, that Dr. Fornay almost has to go through the same kind of cleanup process that, that you all, that Brad, you and your team did, because there's that wonderful sequence at the, at the very beginning when she's setting up all of her equipment and she, they're playing some, some of the tracks back and she says, yeah, we have to, we're going to have to clean this up. And because she's wanting to get a clean recording to play back underwater so that the other whales think that there's, you know, a whale there with them singing, right? So tell me about, like, what's her process around trying to to clean up and, and get usable playback recordings?
1: Yeah, Michelle, that's the, that was kind of one of the big technical feats um, that she was able to achieve as an acoustician is um, how, to trans, how to create a sound that she knows will sound right in a different medium, in, in a fluid environment. Um, and you can uh and it just requires testing and and calibrating and testing and retesting um and so uh Michelle went out uh she had a pilot season where she went out and threw a speaker in the water and um just to test it out for the very first time she calibrated it to her best uh her her best ability and just wanted to see what would happen. She threw it in and um the very first time she threw it in, she heard something pretty close like Seconds after, kind of come out, and she was just like, "It was so." She knew it was she knew she was on the right track, um, but it's just it's 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 kind of highly technical and over my head. But it has something to do with translating and sort of how do you how do you anticipate how do you interpret how to translate the sound that you're recording and put it back in the water and have it emit through that medium again and sound authentic and sound like a whale in the water. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the source material—I I mean, these these are not synthesized whale songs or, or, or whale calls. These are real. So I'm—I cu- I'm, was just kind of curious. I was watching the film and I was—and I was thinking, okay, well, these are real, you know, recorded whale calls. <laughs> it's a—you know—it's a finite community of whales. What it was just—it occurred to me, like, what would happen if she plays this back and you know another whale? either recognizes the voice or are there, di- are there whale dialects Would this whale say like, Oh, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a whale from the South Pacific. What's this whale doing here? Did that ever come up in conversations that you had with her?
1: Yeah, I was, I was, I was like, I was like, well, I was like, Misha, are you, uh are you worried about playing a, you know, the ghost of a dead whale uh, in the water and everyone, like someone hears their grandpa all of a sudden and freaks out. Um, she had thought about that um, already. And, and, Um, she made sure that the calls she was playing, um, were as much as she could, were not calls that those whales would have ever heard before, that they would have been new. So there wouldn't have been any sort of, you know, echo of like, wait a minute, Bob's over there. Um, how could he be over there? You know, so, uh, she, she went to great pains to, uh, make sure there wasn't any kind of redundancy with either whales that are still, who are still with us or, um, or not anymore.
0: Have uh, either of the two scientists heard your final mix? What was their response to it? What did, how did they feel about it?
1: Michelle, uh, Michelle, they've both seen it a few times and they were, I mean, they were just completely beside their, themselves. They'd never quite heard it in that way before. Um, and I'm actually really excited because uh, Ellen will see it for the first time, um, well, in the next. Few months in Scotland uh, in a in a theater environment, which I don't think I'm allowed to say exactly where yet. But anyway, uh, she'll be seeing it in the UK soon as well on a on a big screen, which would be really great. But yeah, this, I, I really think this movie is as speaking as a cinematographer, this movie is the sound upstages the imagery. I mean, it just it just makes it's it's kind of everything. It was which is a complete dream to me because I the film is about the sonic experience of another intelligence. That experiences the world primarily acoustically, so it's appropriate.
0: Well, you know, you say it upstages uh the image, but you you are you are telling a story about listening and about and about sound and the sonic experience of another species. I do uh, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, obviously since you recorded with shotgun mics uh and you had a very that that gives you a very, very specific and narrow kind of audio picture production track. Brad what was it you know what was your challenge then um was there was there is there foley in here like what you know and what, what was the the challenge in kind of filling out the rest of the of the world to give a an accurate picture of what might have been going on sonically
2: you know the, there is some foley i mean we didn't we didn't foley the whole show but there are scenes that we foleyed um not a lot of them frankly um you know i mean we tried to use production everywhere we could for that kind of for that layer of the sound with the, you know, like the Foley type layer. Um, And then, you know, when they get out in the wilds, you know, Nick Nick and his uh, his team made sure that particularly in the Alaska, they worked more on the Alaska part. I did a lot of the sound stuff for um, the South Pacific. Um, You know, they they made sure that like if a bird was singing that it was in Alaska, that 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 was the right bird. and actually, Drew had told us early on in the film, like, "There's no birds in Alaska. Keep it very, very quiet." And uh, we were playing the mix, and he says, "Hey, we gonna need to get that bird out of there." And I said, "No, Drew, that's in the production, man." So, uh, but but you know, I think, but I think there's some, uh, you know, I think that the that I think that's kind of cool, actually, that you know, that there's that I almost wanted it to be the way Drew experienced it and remembered it, and he experienced it and remembered it in that way. So, like, I feel like that's kind of important, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, to take one mic, you know, it was attached to the camera, right, Drew? Yeah. So to take, yeah, so taking, you know, a single mono camera mic and turning it in and getting to where we went, you know, I mean, yeah, there was, there was a lot of work in that. And I think the, you know, the format was helpful because, you know, I like, I like to have an active, you know environment, even in places where it's quiet, which I, I think we did accomplish, uh, like on the boat in particular, like, I'm pretty excited how that turned out. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it just took a lot of work. And, and you know, I, like I said, I did part of it. Um, Nick, Nick and his guys did a lot of it. And um, just putting all that together in a way that, again, was appropriate to what we were trying to accomplish, which is, you know, the the kind of the dichotomy between the two and that. So, I mean, yeah, it was just a lot of work, man. (laughs) Um, You know, and I I feel like, you know, the thing with the production is, you know, your show is always as good. It can only be as as good as your production ultimately. So, you know, I I feel like, you know, what we got was really good because it allowed us to get where we needed to go to create something that wasn't, you know, because if if your production is just really bad, like I tell young filmmakers, like, I can make your, your your production two levels better than what you give me. Right. So if it's mediocre, I can get it from like mediocre to okay to good. If it's bad, I can get it from bad to barely passable to good. If it's, you know, God awful, then I can get you to bad. You know what I mean? So um, and as the tools get better, like maybe we're on to three levels now. But, um, you know, being able to, you know, clean that out just opens up the whole space and allows you to kind of do some of the more kind of cool Wide open type stuff that we did.
0: Well, I want <clears throat> to I want to dig into this a little bit uh, uh, more, uh, Drew. I think you called it acoustic world building uh, when we were when we were talking earlier. Um, so I, I really want to ask you both about sort of your feelings on the on the role of impressionistic sound design and documentary film, um, because you know I think there's this um, there's this notion out there that you know you're presenting objective truth. In the form of the documentary film, um, and yet here, you know, here comes Brad and his team, you know, coming in here hot and heavy with all this great impressionistic sound design. And how do those two notions kind of sit with each other? This is obviously—it's kind of—it's in my mind right now because of the controversy surrounding the, the Anthony Bourdain documentary and the use of, you know, AI and and uh, uh, to replicate some vocal recordings. And obviously this is a very different situation, but, uh, is there, is, is there any kind of a, um, I don't know, like a moral imperative as a documentary filmmaker to, uh, to use sound in an objective way, or how do you, how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I don't, I don't consider myself a journalist and I don't think fathom or any film that I've done is a work of journalism. It's a uh, it's 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 art in the sense that it is expressing a subjective experience and it's my experience as the filmmaker and the experience of the subjects as people. Um, one of my least favorite things to do is to watch the dailies. I really don't like while looking at the dailies, they feel, they feel so empty, like they're so void of, um, what it is, is the emotion, the emotional experience. The thing that I just remembered feeling myself, um, as the operator, um, is almost never there in the raw footage for me. And, and that's filmmaking. It's just like, okay, how do we bring blood uh you know back into the face of these images. Like how do we how do we give it an emotion, an emotional truth? That's kind of what Brad was alluding to earlier. All that matters to me is that um the scientists wa- the subjects of the film watch the film and feel like, yeah, that's that's how that felt. That's that's pretty much how it felt. Um film is is it's a memory to me. It's, it's not a recording or a document. It's, it's a memory. It's an interpreted memory of what happened. And the way I determine whether or not it's truthful or not is by triangulating my memories of it with their memories of it. And if we all align, then it's a truthful film. That's a great answer. I love that.
0: Brad, do you have anything you want to add to that?
2: Uh, You know, I mean, I, I, I've been, you know, we're all the people that we came up with, right? Like some shadow of that or piece of that. And, I've been lucky enough to learn some of that from uh, Malik because he's all about that and about the transitions and how to, you know, go from internal to external, from ethereal to, you know, being very specific to what's on screen. So, um, you know, like I said, I I, I've just been lucky to learn from people who who do that and and drew, you know, to his credit and and, and I'm grateful for it was he, you know, he he sent the film, you know, he gave us the film and said you know make it great and there wasn't there really wasn't a lot of um i don't know there really was i don't want to say there wasn't a lot of direction but there wasn't there wasn't like this is exactly what i want don't stray from the formula it was very much you know i i remember i called him like one day on a on a i was having like way too much fun by myself and um and i called drew because i started to think man maybe i'm taking this way too far and i called him and i said you know hey you know is it cool if I like go out there? And he was like, yeah, absolutely do that. You know? And for me, it's always like, I <clears throat> always hate sending tip mixes, right? Like, cause a lot of times they'll be like, Oh, send me a stereo crash down of what you're doing. I, I, I and every mixer I know hates that because I want you to experience it. Cause you only get one first try. Right. And I want somebody to be able to experience it like the way it's meant to be experienced. And, um, and it was fun for me like i think uh, on the first day we played like the first 30 or 40 minutes for drew and uh like cold like he walked in i said like let's play let's play the first half and then we'll you know do our thing and uh that for me like that's the most fun getting to watch a director or a filmmaker see what i've done with their film the first time you know uh, fortunately that's always gone good but
0: um, I was about to say, it's a good feeling when it goes well.
2: Yeah, it's pretty much, I mean, you know, there's always notes, right? But um, generally, that goes pretty well. So <laughs> it, that was a really fun day for all of us.
1: To, to uh, do credit to Brad, um, he he did have a lot more to say than, um, uh, can I go crazy? Brad, Brad could go crazy because he understood um, that what you're doing in the film is motivated by the character's experience, by, by the subject's experience. Um, and like there are sequences we talked about that I, I would like to talk i talked about them as dreams that it's it's really about what they're feeling in in the film like there's bare, there's straight verite in the film and that's kind of those that's kind of the lifeblood of the film you're seeing things as they happen in sort of a real time um experience and then there's these other scenes in the film that go off um in my mind they go off into into what they know and feel, and into the things that they understand about the process, about the about the knowledge that they're standing on, um, in order to do their work, and um, and they deeply feel this. I mean, Michelle, you see her in the film. She 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 has so internalized the sounds that she's been listening to for for you know over a decade that she just sub. She just starts tracing them in the air, like with her finger, as they're happening. Um, so it was clear from the beginning that it had to be expressive. The sound design had to be expressive of of their experiences, and that we had that poetic license to to really show to show what sound feels like when you have so internalized it in your body that you just start spontaneously tracing it in the air. So, and that's the art. That's the subjective part that Brad understood, um, and Nick as well uh, understood intuitively, and and was able to bring it to the screen. To the speakers, I guess to the screen doesn't really make sense for sound. To the speakers,
0: was this always um, designed as a Dolby Atmos mix? Did you know that from the beginning of the process?
2: You know, Drew and I talked about the film before he left to shoot, and we talked about you know mics and things that he was going to do and stuff like that. But um, you know, I, I don't. So I don't know if from that point it was always going to be Atmos, but you know, from from the time we started, you know, from the time that they had, you know, cuts and we were talking about how how and what we were going to do, it it was understood that that was going to (laughs) be.
3: Gonna head that way to give some space, and then we'll, then we'll cut back. Slow. We're gonna go slow.
0: So, how then did you did that affect the way you kind of approach the tracks uh, and and the mix, or kind of how did you decide to use Atmos because you knew you were gonna have access to the format?
2: I think that ultimately, you know, creating you know creating a soundtrack. um it's kind of the same, I mean, you know, in a way it's, it's, you know, it's the same tools, the same ideas, the same, you know um, it's just, you know, maybe a finer brush to paint with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were, there were certainly things that I knew we were going to like, okay, this is going to be something we're going to go, like we're going to have all the tennis balls spending on this one. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't there are sections where we got, like, you know, in the kind of sound design uh, subject, more subjective type sections where we got, you know, very, very involved with it. Um, but, you know, I, I ultimately think that kind of, you know, mixing is mixing, whether it's mono or whether it's Atmos, right? But, you know, I think the format allowed us to create something that's maybe a little a little more or a little more. I mean, immersive is the obvious word, but it it doesn't seem quite right. Like it's there's just there's a detail to it. It's seamless, kind of, where it just all connects. See, like so, when Drew was saying, you know, well, it's not the screen. Well, like to me, it is the screen. Like it it, it connects the the Atmos helps connect where you're sitting with what's happening on the screen, and and so we kind of approached it that way. And and like I said, I'm I'm a big I'm a stickler for ambiences, and I feel really strongly that they need to be good and you know play a certain way, and I think. I think the, that in that way, especially, um, I, I think that the Atmos format is it really lends itself to that.
0: So you have a beautiful score from Hannon Townsend um, that you you introduce very early on, very right up to the, at the top of the film, and it's it's just a, a beautiful um, treatment of music. I'm curious how you and Hannon kind of decided to because the score exists in balance with the whale song and they almost lead into each other. So tell me a little bit about the process of creating that balance and and how you used the score and the natural whale song.
1: So Hannon's score exists in those more subjective sequences of the film where we're really in the sort of subconsciousness of the scientist, where we're, we're, we're hearing and seeing and, and feeling what they know and what they've internalized about, about their work. And Hannon's score, Hannon scores uh, really comes in in those sequences to really lift up um, those moments where we're kind of, you know, uh, jumping around all over the place and free associating and jumping through space and time through their minds, essentially. Um, and in the same way that, um, in the way that it, those sequences are about what they know or about what's in their heads, um, the most vivid sequences of of whale song and whale communication Exists in those moments because it's sort of how they hear it. How um, Michelle and Ellen hear the calls and hear the songs, um, and that's how we, you know, artistically justify how it was. Also, it's also clean and crisp because I know that they hear right through all the static and they hear those calls really cleanly and, and high fidelity. Um, and so, in that way, uh, yeah, hand and score always had to kind of coexist with the with the sounds uh, that the whales make um how brad was able to balance them all honestly is way over my head Uh, i don't know how he did it but it sounded great it's it's one of those things where like you hear it and it sounds good like okay yeah that's it um but i don't know i have no honestly brad how did you blend them i don't i don't it just felt good well i mean
2: you know most of that credit goes to hannon actually because he you know he knows how to write around that kind of stuff um but You know, I think that, you know, for me, I always feel like, you know, you always have, you know, know, in a mix, you're building, you're building with these layers, right? And you want to have, you know, when you have music and sound effects, you know, some people just play, okay, here's the music, here's the sound effects or here's that, right? And I always feel like, you know, especially like when you're doing an action sequence, right? You want to have these things kind of almost like waves crashing in on each other. So you have like a sound effects moment. And you have a, a horn blast, and then the car drives by, and then the drums play, and then you know, and you want to kind of keyhole all that stuff together, or puzzle piece it together, so that rather than have everybody playing it once, you're playing, you know, like I said, you know, kind of waves crashing on each other. So different things take take the the, the four at different times, like throughout one piece. So, I mean, and, you know, and not to say that we mixed it like an action film, but, you know, that that's kind of the way that I approach doing that kind of stuff. So there's certain places where, you know, like the way the, the there's a, you know, a whale call that's super important. And like one of the things about this film is there are certain whale calls that to this day when I watch, like rip my heart apart. Like they just have this passion to them and they have this sound that's just it's hard to it's hard to explain. You know, it's 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 it. Like some of them, like it sounds like a mother holding her dying child and it just tears you up. Um, There's one in the brain sequence that every time I hear it just makes me want to cry. It's just so powerful. So, you know, I think that, you know, you're feeling the like for me, like I'm always like I have an emotion meter that's just built in when I'm mixing. And I'm going for like what's going to hit the hardest in this, you know, in the next 20 frames, what's the bit that's going to for, you know, keep the story moving forward, keep the emotional thread that we're trying to build through this piece going forward. And, um, you know, and that's, that's kind of how we did it. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of bobbing and weaving in that. But, I, you know, I, 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 I'm always trying to get, you know, how, how are we going to, you know, keep this, emo- you know, like I said, the thread of the story or the thread of the emotions that we're building. So that kind of informs like how and what we're playing as we go.
1: Brad has outed uh, the reason why. This is why Brad is a great mixer because he thinks in, he thinks in terms of the emotional journey of the film and not just like cool stuff for the sake of cool stuff and not just big for the sake of big. It has to be motivated by the emotional journey of the of the subjects of the film, and he gets
2: that intuitively. I was taught that. I've, in fairness, I was taught that. But thank you.
1: <laughs> you were born. You were born. No, now. I. You
2: I. I. I very. 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 Uh experienced and well-known and and wonderful mixer. And I I, I thought I knew that, and he, he crystallized it for me one day, so. I
3: realized song had to be much more than just mating. Small changes are introduced to the song. And then all of the singers learn those changes, and the song evolves. It steps forward. Songs are then passed across distant populations. And as this repeats, they become the shape of what thousands of whales sound like, collectively. All of this is a cultural phenomenon. So from Australia, it first spreads to New Caledonia, 800 miles away. They all learn the song within a couple of months which is ridiculous that animals can learn this very long complex display so rapidly. The songs go from west to east every time connecting an ocean of whales with culture.
0: Drew, you utilize, um, really gorgeous elaborate animations, uh, through the film to kind of visually represent the whale calls and whale song. Um, Tell us about the process of creating those animations, and was that part of your original vision from the beginning of the film?
1: Uh, I think we always kind of knew that we would have to really get creative with what the scientists are seeing on their computer screens in order to really express um, the weight of what they're seeing and and, and what what it means. We worked with a a really great animator, Duncan Elms, who uh, is incapable of creating an image that isn't beautiful? Um, and there are two, there are two sort of big breakthroughs we had in, in terms of um, those animations. One was um, my one of the favorite images for me that came out of this project was that circular rep- representation of of a whale song. It looks like this disc. It also looks like the iris of an eye. Um, it has a lot of different. Um, beautiful visual metaphors to it. But that came about from the idea that Alan expresses in the film of we don't know where songs uh, end and begin. We, we know they're cyclical, but we, we don't know what the beginning and end is. Um, so those rings in the film are, are actually are the real spectrograms, those things that the scientists are seeing on the screen. Um, that the animator then took and folded onto themselves um, and sort of created these rings and to represent them. The other aspect is um, when those images are presented in the film, and in fact, I think almost all the images in the film, either whether it's spectrograms or whether it's the brain sequence, which is based on real MRIs of a humpback brain, I think the only ones the only ones we have, um, and um, they all have this feeling of something is, is, there's like an energy just below the surface that's just like sort of um, ready to pop through. And the reason for that is, spectrograms are a representation of sound. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the visualization of energy in the form of sound. So it's, it's capturing it. And so I wanted it to feel like it's like there, like there's an energy right below the surface, just like, just barely contained. Um, it's this sort of dynamic thing that's that sound is so the general aesthetics of it, um, came from uh, first came from their computer screens, and then sort of those were the motivations for how we brought them to life.
0: The film obviously is uh, available on Apple TV Plus and Dolby Vision. Drew, I know this was uh, this was your first time uh, utilizing Dolby Vision and kind of exploring that tool. Um, I'm curious what your experience was, like what uh, um, what did you feel like you were able to accomplish using the dynamic range and the, the color space and, and Dolby vision that you might not have been able to in a conventional grading situation?
1: Yeah. I, um, the colorist, uh, Walter Valpado at company three, um, was, I mean, he was my guide, uh, through, through, through this whole experience. He's so well versed into it in it, um, he's an artist and he's a technician. Um, so he understands all the, he understands all the ones and zeros behind what's happening and why, but also, um, also like Brad it's the artistic reasons for why we're doing things and um, Walter and I were together for a couple of weeks in Los Angeles coloring the film and we went through every sort of every kind of color every um, you know grade that you can do on the film and the one thing he kept telling me was it's his philosophy but also I think he was a sort of explained to me how Dolby Vision makes that pretty seamless which is the idea that no matter what version of the film someone's watching whether it's HDR whether it's p3 in a theater whether it's, um, uh, uh, it's rec 709 um, they're seeing the same film it's this it's the same it's the same essence of the film it's the same painting so to speak that they're seeing um, and that Dolby vision uh, kind of guarantees that that it's good the transitions between those it'll be one uniform vision no matter I mean in this crazy world we're like people really, there are like, I don't even know, like a dozen different visual you know, versions, of how many nits your screen is and all this kind of, we watched in the, this really special, I think a Dolby screen, actually, Dolby Vision screen, um, of which there are like four or something. And we watched, I don't even remember, like a, a lot of, there were a lot of nits. And there were so many nits that uh, during, a sh- in a shot in the film where you see the sun rising, we all squinted in the room. Like it was like the sun was shining in our faces. And that was a weird, that was to have that involuntary response that you don't normally have in a theater um, was kind of remarkable. It's moving in a different way. Um, So uh, to me, it was that, that was kind of how Walter described it to me. It was sort of, it makes, it makes everything seamless no matter how someone watches the film. Um, And Apple's been really great about that, by the way. I think they have one of the best viewing experiences on any platform that I'm aware of. Really pushing, um, and for sound, to be honest, they've been really pushing Atmos, and the fact that they care so much about uh, sound and and uh, visual fidelity Um, as an artist, where you're sort of, you know, letting your film out into the world, and like crossing your fingers that their screens, the people's screens at home, and speakers are gonna do it justice. Um, The fact that they're putting so much effort on the front end of making sure that whatever's delivered to them is the best possible and highly fidelous thing. It's, it means a lot.
0: Drew, are there any particular moments that, uh, that stand out for you f- for Dolby Vision? I, I, for me, uh, I love the shots. I think it's pretty much in, the, in, the, in the, the, the French Polynesian sequences, but the shots on the water and just the highlights on the waves, it reminded me like that's what, that's what, it, it, that's, that's what it looks like. You know, those, those super bright highlights of the sunlight off the top of the water
1: uh not too far from what you were noticing and, and admiring was like the actual water itself to me. Um there are so many blues and purples and greens in this film that represent the same body of water, our ocean, you know, our Pacific Ocean. And um uh I remember reading uh sort of in the Odyssey how uh the way they describe there's like waters described so many different ways, uh, different kinds of purples and stuff. And it wasn't until this film that I understood how varied the color of water is and and water is obviously the main sort of environment in which this film takes place and it's its own character Um, the way I filmed it um, had that in mind and to see all these variations of colors from not even different parts of the ocean but just different times of day Um, and they they become its own character in a way that they're also kind of reflecting the scientists and their moods and how they're feeling and stuff so it's that variation in color, I honestly, that came in post. Uh, that wasn't sort of straight out of the camera. And that was, uh, it was really beautiful. It's still one of my favorite things to kind of just stare at the water and different scenes of the film and see how it evolves and changes.
0: It occurred to me watching the film that, you know, as a filmmaker, Drew, you're kind of on the same journey with the scientists. They're out there kind of doing these experiments. They don't know if it's going to succeed. And in, in fact, Dr. Forney at one point says it's likely that we're going to fail um, with this experiment, you're out there gathering footage. You don't know if there's going to be a movie here or not. So you're all kind of, kind of groping in the dark. Right. And so I'm curious, you know, how did this, did this inform your feelings about their process and their work and vice versa? You know, did this change your feelings about the the nature of storytelling through documentary?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's how, I, I mean, that's how I could relate to them as somebody who, um, as somebody who also leaves home for long periods of time to pursue a story, um, that feels bigger, uh, than anything else and sort of put everything of yours aside to do that, I could really relate to that on that level, the scientists, um, and they're storytellers. They're just using a different medium and they're, and they're, and they're telling it in different ways. Um, so that certainly was, that was definitely a parallel journey and we shared a lot in common. I think that's where a lot of the trust came from, um, especially in parts of the film where they're. Um, talking more about their personal experiences and sacrifices to do it, it was in some ways what they're saying is in reply to, to conversations that we've had already about, about, um, you know, the the goods and the bads of, 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 of the kind of work um, and why it's worth it, why it feels worth it. Um, and in terms of how it's uh, affected, how I view uh, uh, filmmaking. Um, I think it's, throughout the process of the film we had a lot of discussions over what is the message like what is the thing what is the reason why they're doing it what is the reason why i'm making this film what do i want audiences to take away from it et cetera. What, what do they want audiences to take away from as scientists versus myself as a filmmaker um and it really drove home the idea for i think for seeing what they're doing and why they're doing it it drove home the idea of um what makes all of this worth it is, um, you know, trying really, really hard to bring home stories that um, push our community that we all live in um, to be a little, uh, a little more empathetic, uh, to expand how we think of ourselves um, and the world, um, rather than narrow it down more and more and more how we see ourselves. So uh, broadly speaking, that it kind of reinforced that idea why we do this. You made a great film,
0: well, I, I think that's, a, that's probably, a, a, probably a, a great way to go out. Uh, Drew and Brad, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about Fathom and about, uh, uh, you know, I, I love this film because it's about people listening to the world and learning about the world through sound. And that obviously is a topic that's very dear to our hearts here at Dolby. So, uh, And thank you so much for using the technology to make a really compelling, immersive, visually powerful Story, You guys
1: did fantastic work here. Thank you, Glenn. It, would, it wouldn't be as good of a film without it, to be honest. So um, thanks very much for having us. It's a, been an absolute pleasure.
0: Many thanks to Drew Zanthopoulos and to Brad Engelking for joining us for the conversation today. I'd also like to thank our friends over at Apple for putting this interview together. You can watch Fathom right now on Apple TV+. It is streaming there in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, and it is an amazing experience. As always, you can find links to the film via our show notes. And if you haven't already, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We have a ton of exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks that you will not want to miss. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in the show notes or by searching for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on the Apple Podcasts app. It really helps raise awareness of our show so that we can continue to grow. Until then, thanks again for listening to us. This has been Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. Thank you for listening.